This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. My guest today is music director Alexander Shelley, and the subject is Richard Strauss. Maestro Shelley conducted Don Juan here a few seasons ago in one of his first concerts as guest conductor. This season, in early April, he will conduct Don Juan and Death and Transfiguration. And later in the same week, we'll be showing them both off in Toronto during what has become an annual run-out concert. Next season will mark the first performance by the NAC Orchestra of Also Sprach Zarathustra, if you think a theme is emerging here, you may be right. So, Alexander, what exactly are you up to? Well, your detective skills have served you well there. Um, over the coming few seasons, we're going to, among many other things in our, in our repertory, explore Richard Strauss and all his music. Um, so... We're beginning this season, as you mentioned, with Don Juan and with Death and Transfiguration. Next season, we have Also Sprach Zarathustra, and we have also um, Aus Italien, so Out of Italy, which is uh, one of his very first tone poems. Um, and as the seasons progress, we're going to carry on doing that. Uh, we'll work our way through his early tone poems first and then see where life leads us. But um, I'm, I'm very excited about it because I love his music. So do we. Good. And and it's interesting when it was actually my first concert here as guest. I was going to say, yeah. it must have been one of the very first. It was my very was first, first. And uh, we had a lovely eclectic mix of music. We did, if I remember rightly, uh, Korngold, Much Ado About Nothing Suite. We did uh, Don Juan. We did uh, Frank Bridge, There Is a Willow Grows a Slanter Brook. Uh, we also did... I think Rossini or something like that, but it was anyway a storytelling um, right. and and uh, a theme. And I remember thinking how beautifully the orchestra played Strauss, because of course this the, this orchestra has has a very interesting history how it developed. It was really a very compact, essentially baroque, an early classical orchestra, as you will well know. Of course, yeah. um, and it's changed and developed over the years. And Pincus. Um, did a, a wonderful job of expanding the size of the orchestra and expanding the repertory um, into Brahms, into Beethoven, into Tchaikovsky. Um, and the lovely thing is that we, we have that now. 
we have that as a as a collective and of course we need to nurture it and make sure it remains as as good as it always has been within the orchestra but i think there's absolutely both room for and an appetite for um expanding the repertoire further and that means new music of which we do a lot uh, in the sense of contemporary music but also uh, maybe moving into the late romantic period uh, finding some unexplored works in the early romantic and the classical period and so on and so forth we've done so many new works even this season mm. uh, it's very stimulating and I was wondering uh, you've kind of alluded to it the Strauss is a it's a direction to go I mean do you see uh, a direction for the orchestra to go in terms of uh, I'm not, I don't want to put you on the spot but mm. uh, the orchestra is getting gradually bigger mm-hmm. uh, do you see it eventually uh, staying bigger well, in my mind's eye, and when we're programming, and that's that's how we think. Uh, the the thing is, it's it's as much as as anything. It's it's for our audience. Um, audiences need uh, a really healthy mix of of things, and we all, God knows, love Bach and Mozart. I mean, which classical musician doesn't? We all love Haydn. You know, we all love Schubert. Um, but it's been played to death, and it's yeah, it's a very healthy diet. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, when one has that mandate to to, to serve a city as as the the symphony orchestra, and then a broader region, then to travel nationally and internationally, um, we need to have other stuff up our sleeve. And uh, this orchestra plays that repertoire very very well. It's it's lovely to hear. So I thought, um, you know, while maintaining the rest of our repertoire, let's let's enjoy it and and of course uh, it's it's a decision that was made carefully there's we started the season with Mahler Mahler would be another road to go down Mahler of course requires even greater forces and where uh, where we when I say we the sort of artistic management uh, and I were, were having the main discussion was around the type of string sound required for different things now I find um, Strauss in, in a lot of his tone poems, benefits from very healthy string playing, but string playing that then has a degree of transparency to it. And the same applies in the woodwind and the, and the brass. There's so much polyphony, so much counterpoint, and there's so many threads. So how often will a second clarinet or a second oboe um, or a flute in a low register, an oboe in a low register, have one of the main thematic pieces of material in a piece of Strauss? Now, that can easily be subsumed in, in, in the whole if the string section is unthinking in inverted commas big. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, I think when we, when we take our larger string section, it's still smaller than a lot of big symphony orchestras put on stage, but they play with unbelievable guts and strength. Sound. So yeah, we, we have, I find, a nice mixture. On stage, it still feels taut and compact. It feels like the people at the back of the sections really have a contact with the front of the orchestra, with the woman with the brass, which for Strauss is, is very beneficial. When you get into the Bruckner world, not everything, of course, but there, and, and, and frankly, that fundamental pl- point applies to all music. That said, the there's the the necessity sometimes for a much weightier uh, string sound. There are moments of Strauss as well where you need it, of course. But um, that was a decision why not to go down the Mahler route, let's say, although we will be doing Mahler over the next few seasons. Some beautiful things are planned. I won't mention them yet, but, no, no. you know, things that we're, we're heading towards. Um, I'd like to say uh, Strauss himself was very particular. You know, he did a lot of conducting himself. Mm. 
he was very particular about uh, transparency and clarity, mm. especially, of course, when he was talking about his operas. He was always yes. complaining about the singers being drowned out. Yeah. Well, he was, he was one of, you, you say... Even uh, though he wrote for big forces. Yeah. I mean, you say rather <clears throat> modestly he, was, he, he conducted as well. I mean, he was one of the great conductors. Yeah. Uh, he followed Mahler into the post of general music director of the Vienna State Opera. And when you read comments by... Uh, and you, in fact, there are videos of people who were in the orchestra when he, he conducted and had experienced Mahler before because it was just that age where people of the older generation could be filmed. And, you know, there, there are videos around. It's wonderful. Um, but, you know, saying they, for, for, a, for a long time, because they'd had Mahler, they didn't think anybody matched him. They just didn't, the mm -hmm. orchestral players. Mm -hmm. And then finally they came around to Strauss um, and they, they viewed him like they did Mahler which was that he was pretty much the greatest living musician. And uh, there are testaments by singers who, who perform with him saying that there was never a greater conductor. And, and they say that he had such an understanding of where what singers' capabilities were, and he matched the orchestra to it. He made sure that, like you said, they... they they were given the freedom to be able to to sing with a range of dynamics without ever being drowned out. And his timings are very interesting. You know, when you we have a, a lot of audio material passed on from from his his performances, and uh, he he's in no way um, self indulgent. Let's say in his music, and if you see videos, it's almost frustrating. I mean, he 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 looks like he's waiting for a bus when he's conducting. His gestures are minimal, aren't they? Absolutely tiny, and and. Um, and a lot of the rehearsal video, nothing's really together either. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to listen to the um, you have to listen to the uh, recorded uh, material and archive stuff. And yet, there is a sound there. There's a um, mm, how can I put it? He's there's no sentimentality in the conducting. He allows the music to be sentimental without him being sentimental. And I think that that was actually true in some ways of the age. And it's something very important, I think, for us to be aware of. I think in many ways he was the man of the age. I mean, he came along at exactly the right time for the kind of music that he wanted to write and the subjects that he used. I think so as well. And I think there's also a strong argument for him being perhaps the last of those... <clears throat> composer, conductors, or just composers where the whole world said, yep, he's the real deal, and where there was a huge demand. I mean, if you look at the the, the reports of the premiere of Salome and Electra and then Rose and Cavalier and the worldwide expectation and fever around it happening, mm -hmm. um, that was something that perhaps died with him. I think at that time, at least, uh, there was such a there was a building antipathy towards things German in the rest yeah. of Europe. Yeah. And yet the music was always, there was never any question about the music being, you know, the top of the class, right. so to speak. I mean, the, of course, he, he, um, he like, we, the earlier in the season we performed music by Charlie Chaplin and we did this 1920s festival. Right. Um, and uh, I, of course, you could take any time in history and, and it would be fascinating. I, f I find their lifespans, people like Strauss, people like Charlie Chaplin, absolutely fascinating because when they were born, there were kings and emperors. There were horses and carts. There was pen and paper. And 60, 70 years later, people were driving cars. People were using televisions and radios and telephones. 
democratic systems uh, where they'd gone through tyranny and then back to democratic systems. Music had changed extraordinarily in in that period, and 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 it's amazing thinking about their lives and seeing how they made their decisions as well, their artistic decisions, and that's one of the things that stands out for me about Strauss. Um, he and Thomas Mann were almost exact contemporaries. Yeah. And they both uh, used as a subject, in many ways, the, the role of the artist in society. They saw themselves, you know, sort of as artists relating yeah. to society. Well, and that's, that is an interesting subject from the period because, I mean, essentially, well, you have it going back to Beethoven, let's say, uh, you know, an explicit sense that the artist has a political role to play, even though Strauss was completely uninterested in mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. And he... Uh, when uh, you know, when challenged about his, his he was role. blamed for it. But he, yeah, when he was ro- challenged for his role in the Second World War, um, he he said, "Look, I- I'm just trying to make the best of a very bad situation, and politics interests me not one bit." You know, there are these um, when 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 his librettist Stefan Zweig, when he was his second librettist after Hofmannsthal, when when Stefan Zweig was um, ba- basically forced to leave the country, and when his his music was was deemed. Um, uh, excuse me, his his plays and his literature was deemed unperformable by the Nazi regime. Uh, Strauss did, you know, he wrote a letter to him, a famous letter, where he said, do you you think that I ever, when I'm writing my music, think of myself as German? Do you think Mozart wrote Aryan music? Of course not. You know, he, and and that's how he talked about it. But to get back to this idea of the artist and society, the, I think that's why uh, both Nietzsche uh, and Auch and also uh, Schopenhauer were uh, were very interesting figures for Wagner and for Strauss. You know that Wagner was fascinated by Schopenhauer's uh, um, uh, philosophy, and and uh, Strauss was drawn to Nietzsche at least earlier in his life because of those those two philosophers expressing, and particularly Schopenhauer, how art and music is a gateway, and that it plays an incredibly important function. And role in society that um, that essentially the only route to fulfillment of of the spirit of the soul of the will was through music and I think that's why he they both Wagner and also um, Strauss were, were very drawn to that because I think he did have a belief that that art had a had a trans a transformational or transformative role to play in society I think he said actually that it was art was actually the f- the first manifestation of an actual civilization. I mean, if yeah. there's going to be a civilization, the first thing that you notice is there's art. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't remember where it was yesterday. It was some kind of advertising thing I saw on the internet saying, you know, a great nation deserves great art. And I remember thinking exactly that. that you're saying that, hold on, a, a great nation is only a great nation if it has great art. Otherwise, it's just, what is it? Exactly. I mean, and I, I include it in, within art. You know, is of course literature, painting, music, but then also architecture and, and okay. things like that. But um, but that is when we also look back uh, at other cultures. We we rarely think about how much wealth they accrued. Exactly. Sometimes we are astonished by the things they built, like the pyramids, and of course that it, part of that involves great wealth and the ability to. But but in fact, what interests us is their cultural standing. How 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 developed they were as, as cultures, um, and as you know, our, our society will be judged 
the same way in in a thousand years. Exactly. Um, and he said it, it's it's really tragic. Having we, I talked a moment ago about his his life span going from the sort of eighteen eighties and through uh, to the nineteen forty nine. Two actually, world wars. Yeah, two world wars. But also the you know things he wrote at the end of the Second World War. Um, incredibly sad. People like him. Germ- Germany was. In the 20s, 30s, perhaps the most cultivated country in the world. And it was full of people like him. You know, you mentioned Thomas Mann. You talk about uh, Gustav Mahler. You talk about All Richard the playwrights and painters. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many of them. And then he wrote this very sad... Uh, Metamorphosen. Well, yeah, he wrote Metamorphosen, but he wrote these very sad letters just before he wrote Metamorphosen saying, you know, he's standing in front of the opera house in Munich. It's completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. Where his father played Tannhäuser. And, and he says, but... Well, to paraphrase, Germany is not the buildings. Germany is in Schubert's Sixth Symphony, or the German, let's say the Austro-German. Uh, he was listening to Schubert's Symphony, and he said, and that is the soul. That is that is the Germany that I understand, and that will exist until the earth freezes over. It was actually a lovely sentiment, this belief that art. And, you know, we had that the other day, and we performed Brahms' Nenia right. and his Requiem, and I think that's also in there too. Absolutely. The, the eternal nature of art. In one way, he. I'm thinking that the last German symphony was written by Mahler. Mm-hmm. The symphony went somewhere else after that. It went to Russia, it went to England, it went mm-hmm. to America. Mm-hmm. It sort of stopped in Germany, and then Strauss went along with the operas and. Yeah, and Strauss is. Strauss is um I mean, he wrote a very early symphony. Yeah. Because every young. You know, it, was, it was sort of part of the thing to get under your belt. Yeah. Um, but. I I think that one can't, with Strauss, ignore the influence of Mozart. So as a young man, he used to play Mozart on the piano and he used to study it. And again, there are, there are sort of uh, comments that have been passed down by him from his, his diary of, of how astonishing he thought Mozart was. Um, and then the influence of Wagner. And I think the first half of his life... Uh, it's going to sound like a strange thing to say, but the first half of his creative output was in a way influenced by by the storytelling of Wagner and then the operas of Mozart. I mean, if you take if you take um, Elektra or you take Salome, sure, this is this sort of extended harmonic language. But as he got later in his life, I mean, explicitly with Rosenkavalier, yes. it was a look back towards Mozart. But then you get to the bourgeois gentilhomme and things like that, and he, he moves back into a more classical uh, way of approaching opera, perhaps. His range is very big because he uses classical and biblical themes, you know, exactly. Electra Salome, exactly. and then the Viennese opera, and then the, his later operas are almost played. Yeah, well, Molière, that's the, the bourgeois gentilhomme is based on Molière. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's... it's, it's uh, he was, a, I find, a real pragmatist. There's this big discussion around his... Uh, harmonic development um, this question of whether he was avant-garde enough uh, of course 20th century is it's always been incredibly important to be new um, uh, I like it when people do something old very well <laughs> yeah. or something current very well or something that was two weeks old very well you know it, it doesn't really matter um, you, I find that with Strauss what one can actually also um, really appreciate about him is that he tailored his musical language to the content of the thing he was trying to say. Exactly. So he never, he wrote, he wrote Salome and then he wrote Electra. And 
someone else might have said after a lecture, right, I'm going to see where I can take harmony now. I'm going to really break it down. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wasn't, a, he, he wasn't dogmatic in that sense. He, he, didn't, he didn't want to break ta- down harmony for the sake of breaking down harmony. He, he, and he tended to ping pong back and forth between you know, serious operas and then uh, serious subjects and then lighter subjects. And, and in his, his choice of, of, of harmony and melody and structure and form, um, you get the sense that he was a, a pragmatic, makes it almost sound derogatory, but he was, he was very sensitive to the material. And he found a, a harmonic and a melodic language that suited it, which I really appreciate. I, I love about him. What stands out for me is in his operas in particular and in, and in his songs is the, the conversational style of the, mm. of, of the, of the libretto. Absolutely. It's much, well, it's much more dramatic. It's never sort of set piece. Yeah. It's always continuous conversation. And I conversation. think that that, that that relationship between Hofmannsthal and Strauss, so he found a, one of the great collaborators and collaborators. Um, I, it's, it's one of the great, you know, with Mozart da Ponte, it's one of the great collaborations yeah. in the history of opera. Barnum and Bailey. Exactly. Cross and exactly, <laughs> and I think that they. I think that he. I think they complemented one another. I think that Hofmannsthal really complemented who Strauss was, and and was able to bring things to the table that Strauss maybe naturally wouldn't ha- have done. Um, but uh, but yes, the and it is his. Extru- an exquisite sense of how to, to write beautiful lines for singers as well. For sopranos in particular. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I was thinking about his tone poems since we're doing a couple of them. Do you see him coming straight down in a line from, say, Berlioz and uh, Liszt in that regard, or do you see different influences? Look, Liszt and me is not a very comfortable relationship. <laughs> I've been asked, uh, I remember being asked in... He's a good, bad composer. In, in Nuremberg... Um, <laughs> We we have this uh, this sort of questionnaire with the orchestra when we have I guess artists coming you know saying what's your favorite food blah 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 and and then is there a composer you really can't stand mm-hmm. and I had to fill out the thing as well and I was thinking about it and it's not that of course not that I can't stand him and he the man was a genius but I I don't get a lot from Liszt's orchestral music I think if I was a pianist I'd feel very differently about sure. him. Sure. Um, and for me, Strauss is the far superior uh, composer of tone poems. Um, now, Strauss, uh, so I, yes, of course, they are in a certain li- line of, and, and, and Liszt must be thanked for developing the form of the tone poem a little bit more. But um, for me, Strauss's use of harmony, his use of um, uh, he interestingly, at a time when Wagner had pushed cadence delay so far, this idea that instead of resolving a phrase, it actually then transforms and moves somewhere else without the resolution. Strauss interestingly actually doesn't do that that as much as one would think. He has a, a, a brilliant command of, of harmony, of course, and he had a brilliant command of post and Wagnerian um, harmony. But there, there are actually there's very clear grammar within his music. There's a comma here. There's a full stop there. There's in 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 the musical sense of he he puts a lot of cadences in. And um, I find his his command uh, Strauss's command of of the form of the tone poem and his his ability to create coherent forms in tone poem tone poem surpasses that of of Liszt. But hey, who am I to to criticize uh, Liszt? You know. Mm-hmm. But it, in a way, I mean. When you think about, um, for instance, Heldenleben, mm. uh, Don Quixote is 
again, going back to uh, Nietzsche and mm. so forth, there's a lot of uh, people criticize it for the uh, apparent ego of the writing. Do you well, see that? And, and, you know, we'll be doing Alter Spaz Zarathustra, which is a Nietzsche of book. Of course. Um, and, I mean, in a sense, you have to then blame Nietzsche, but I think Nietzsche is... Uh, in, I mean, he said some you know, pretty weird things, but he's also... He's very badly represented, I think. Exactly. The, the concept of the Superman was, in a sense, appropriated, as, especially in our minds, by, by Nazi Germany. And, and, and the, as far as I understand, and I'm not a philosophy major, but it's something that interests me very much and always has, um, the, uh, the idea of the Superman is far more nuanced than, than, than we think of it. For example, Nietzsche's... Nietzsche had in mind when he was thinking of the Superman um, uh, someone like Goethe mm -hmm. who was not some physical god he was talking about um, the ability to be sort of the best version of oneself and to, to be the best kind of human that one could be and he was extrapolating forward he was saying alright how do we how do we develop and the best way to develop is to conceive of a version of us which is the best possible version the Superman, um, and uh, and he took elements of he took elements of Julius Caesar, of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, of uh, um, you know other heroes of his throughout history. And the thing that's slightly dark about it is that he, um, I mean, he of course said part of being those kinds of people is that actually you do need to have a self confidence. And maybe a belief in yourself that in in our Christian society is viewed as as slightly uncomfortable, um, and and you know he he along with Schopenhauer in a different way believed in getting back to a, a different kind of ideology, essentially a pagan ideology. So it didn't sit well, I think, one, especially post Second World War, especially after the indescribable. Of the extent to which some of the elements of that philosophy were taken. I think, though, that to be fair, that uh, it was part of the, if you'll say, if you'll excuse your expression, uh, zeitgeist, yeah. even in places like England and America. If yeah. you think of writers like, say, Thomas Carlyle, mm. heroes and hero worship, yeah. and even the transcendentalists, yes. you know, the self-reliant, you know, the, the getting away from Christianity, the, the more individual approach. Exactly. Uh, the, the links with nature, all that sort of thing. It was all sort of going on at the same time. Exactly. But I guess the Germans took a rap for it in Strauss. Yeah, and know. I mean, the trouble is, the trouble is philosophers need the they space. Need a, they, they need a context, don't they? Yeah, they also need the space to be able to say things. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, to, you know, things, that, there are things that Schopenhauer asserted in his philosophy that are, you can't back them up. But they're still very interesting thought games, mm -hmm. um, and the same with with uh, Nietzsche. But that said, I'm not a Nietzsche expert. I'm, uh, you know, but I I can see how uh, Strauss was drawn to to the texts. Uh, it's very brilliant writing. It's very provocative and, and interesting, and especially to the artistic temperament. Let's say um, there are ideas in there which are, uh, are deeply empowering. Um, and I think that conversation is an interesting one. He, Nietzsche made, us, uh, made assertions um, around sort of Christianity. And, and in fact, his belief that there were a lot of very negative, sort of deeply psychologically negative influences um, on us all through the, 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 the founding principles of Christianity. And, and there, even if one um, 
absolutely disagrees with them. They're very interesting things to read about and think about because at least then when, when challenged by that line of thought, one's had a, a, a moment to sort of get one's head around it. And I think that that's something that, that uh, stimulated Strauss. So what do you make of the ending, the uh, bitonal ending of Zarathustra? Uh, harmonically or in the... Well, the B and the, is it the B and the C? Yeah. I mean, do, do you mean uh, the, the philosophy of it's it? It's like or? the unanswered question or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is just like the unanswered question. And I, and I think that that's probably how it's intended as well. The, uh, uh, and he did that in... He, he had that gift. I mean, he does it in Rosenkavali as well. There, there's just these sudden little uh, flashes of actually very contemporary very avant-garde uh, harmony that he'll just use as a little flavor and a color and often as a philosophical statement, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in the, you know, we've talked about Strauss as a man of his time. Mm. How, how do you rate him? Uh, there's an old saying, I think I mentioned it to you. We used to do a lot of work with uh, Franz Paul Decker. In fact, we did Rosenkavalier Suite with him and Death and Transfiguration with him. And he said at one rehearsal, very curiously to me, he said, if it's Richard, it's Wagner, if it's Strauss, it's Johann. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's a cute saying. I mean, <laughs> Strauss himself described himself as a very good second-rate composer at one time. Yeah, I, do you and, believe him? Well, he's. Uh, it's. 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 Um, I think it's endearing that he was so modest, um, and of course, he had the clarity of mind to. I don't know how any composer looks at. Mozart or Bach and doesn't feel inferior yeah you know it's but what's the point in trying to Mm -hmm. trying to be that you have to be you Um, and especially when their tonal language is so different um, you can't I mean it's one of the lovely joys of being a conductor you you get to sort of fall in love every week with a new composer and, and for that week you're with that person and their piece but every time I return to Mozart every time I return to Bach I think, you know, it's, it's just the perfection. You know, Bach is, is it's, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. But then I think the same thing when we go to Beethoven and then to Mendelssohn and then to Schubert. Um, People forget sometimes how subversive Mozart actually was in terms oh, of... Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, when you think about uh, Marriage of Figaro, I mean, absolutely. that was pretty subversive stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, Not just pretty tunes. Absolutely not just pretty tunes, and and the the layering. You know, when you when you spend time working on something like uh, Figaro or Cosi, the and the darkness in uh, yeah. the flute, for instance. Absolutely, and 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 again with Da Ponte, they he had a great librettist, somebody who wrote absolutely, uh, and and the Beaumarchais plays of are course. brilliant. Yeah, you know, very subversive. Uh, and, uh, and 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 in fact, this sort of most subversive material can. Uh, for the time is 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 actually exorcised but the 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 thing i love about something like figaro is the the statement um that that holds true to this day about what relationships are like within a within a household and with between friends and between lovers mm-hmm. and that's that's the sort of universal part of it that is incredibly touching now if you if you are involved in a production that gets to that core where you you recognize in all of the characters something you've experienced yourself then you uh, offer Mozart the opportunity through his music to say things to your soul um, that are incredibly um, rewarding. You know, it's it's this sort of sense of empathy um, that you didn't know existed. That someone really can, through music, create a sound and a 
and and a sound world that 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 summons up those feelings of tenderness, of insecurity, of love, of warmth. And I think often in 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 Figaro, the when when the count at the end finally says, um, you know, forgive me, Contessa, you know, perdona, um, that arrival point, he he expresses again in music that sense of laying oneself bare, the expression of, um, you know, awareness one's done something wrong, but genuinely turning over a new leaf. I don't know, it's amazing. Anyway, um, uh, to get back to Strauss. You get the same sort of uh, feeling of renunciation in the music that that, uh, closes Rosen Cavalier. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I think that um, Strauss was uh, very brilliant in, in, in going back to that kind of material. I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of parallels between Figaro and Rosen Cavalier. Um, and, uh, but anyway, he's, yeah, so Strauss is a, as a man of his time, as a, as a composer, I personally rate incredibly highly. Um, and I don't know if one can, you know, I, I, does he have a successor? But I don't know. Do you think he has a successor somewhere? Is there someone that comes to mind? No one jumps out at me. The only I thing mean, that Korngold people like Korngold, that, they, they carry an element of his sound world. Yeah. To some extent, um, it might seem like a stretch. Uh, Benjamin Britten's operas, mm-hmm. in some way, in their conversational yeah. and dramatic That's true. style. And interestingly, I think, I if I remember rightly, of twentieth-century composers, Puccini is the most performed. Followed by Strauss, followed by Britain, mm-hmm. actually. So Strauss and Britain, uh, after Puccini, the sort of two most performed. And, and yeah, even though the musical language is often Quite very different. different, that conversational element and the very natural way that it flows is, mm-hmm. is comparable, yes. Well, we're looking forward to playing lots of Strauss the next couple of years. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Thanks very much for doing this. Thanks for having me. All the best.
This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NAC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.